you should volunteer on as many film sets as you can, you know, meet as many people as you can, make as many movies as you can, like just use this time. This is The Sparkcast, a bi-weekly show where we explore the creativity, technology, and business of CG. I'm your host, Marina Antunes. Zach Lepofsky has early memories of a childhood spent on sets, surrounded by the buzz of TVs and master controls, thanks to his mother's career in television. But it was a transformative experience at the tender age of nine when Jurassic Park left an indelible mark on him. The youthful actor turned filmmaker invested his early earnings into the digital revolution, teaching himself visual effects and collaborating with the community of budding filmmakers. In our conversation, Zach speaks candidly about the highs and lows of an artist's life, emphasizing the importance of finding joy in the journey and not just the destination. We touch on the delicate act of juggling personal creative projects with commissioned work, offering insight into how these endeavors can fuel each other. The power of collaboration comes to the forefront as well, with anecdotes about successful partnerships that illustrate the potential when combining forces in the industry. Additionally, we discuss the crucial aspects of pitching and preparation for filmmakers, including a riveting account of how a dramatic pitch meeting landed Zach a job directing the upcoming Final Destination film. Here's our conversation with Zach Lipovsky. So I wanted to start by asking you about, you know, your love of movies. Where did that first come from? I have a pretty unique beginning origin story of my filmmaking journey because I was raised by a single mom and she was a TV producer for a very low budget, you know, government television. But I, you know, because she was a single mom, the daycare is complicated. I essentially grew up on set. Um, so I grew up, you know, running around sets. I grew up sleeping under the Avid. I grew up, uh, she, she used to work at the local station called Knowledge Network. So I'd be running around master control with, you know, with the satellite dishes above. So for me, all the people I knew were directors and actors and writers and cameramen. And like, to me, that was what people did when they grew up. So that was always something that was really exciting to me. I did a lot of acting as a kid and, and obviously fell in love with movies as I kind of grew up watching them and wanting to make them. The most sort of pivotal movie for me was watching Jurassic Park because I was nine years old. When I went to go see it in the theaters, having never seen a an adult movie, if you will, a movie where people get ripped in half by dinosaurs had never happened to me and was completely terrified and was convinced. I remember I was convinced I was going to die in the movie theater and was spent most of the movie covering my eyes. I don't know why my mom didn't take me out, but then realized after the T-Rex paddock scene that I wasn't dead and then felt like I was had missed everything because I had literally been closing my eyes the whole time. So then wishing I could, you know, see the dinosaurs and then of course the velociraptors in the kitchen at the end and all that, you know, I was on the edge of my seat and that was kind of the beginning of me really wanting to to make adventure films and action films and commercial movies and kind of, you know, my my love affair really on the filmmaking side really started then. And I mean, that's really young. I mean, nine is an early age to decide that this is what you want to do and then to actually start working towards it. What did that look like on like a practical basis? All of a sudden you're like, I want to make movies. How do you do that at nine? So when I was nine, it would have been 
1993, uh, which is right when Jurassic Park came out. So around then, the digital revolution was still very early. Um, I think at 10, I had the first digital still camera, which was essentially a floppy disk that slid into like a, you know, a camera that was, you know, a foot across and computers couldn't yet do digital video, but they could do low frame rate um, pictures. So I was doing a lot of stop motion and that type of stuff with my digital still camera. And then eventually, you know, digital, you know, video cameras that were really, really shitty started, you know, be, be, being able to do like um, digital high eight and like that type of stuff and just kind of grew up with the digital revolution. And because I was a actor as a kid, I actually had money to have like the first G4 and the first like, you know, version of Final Cut Pro when I was 11, when I was in grade 11. And like, so the very early beginnings of sort of digital film production, I was very much there at that moment, having an extreme amount of time to dispose into doing that. And so a lot of the people I was making movies with were much older than me because they had all wanted to be filmmakers, but the technology to do it DIY wasn't there. So they had all gone off and gone to college or done whatever. And now suddenly the technology was becoming available and we were all making films every weekend and doing 48-hour film festivals and 24-hour film festivals. And I was doing a lot of um, visual effects because I had kind of self-taught myself how to do that. And so really I was making short films from basically my sort of early teens until I um, graduated high school. And then um, that's all I was doing by the time I graduated. Cause by then, you know, final cut was now at like final cut two and, you know, mini DV. And that was right when I graduated high school is when 24 P started happening with the, um, with the DVX 100 and like the XL one and like that kind of revolution of like the um, film digital film actually starting to look good was just starting to happen. And kind of that revolution was pretty cool. At any point, I mean, clearly your mom was really supportive. I mean, you know, you were already acting at a young age. At any point, was she like, you know, maybe you should have a backup plan because this might not work out. I mean, she's in the business, so she knows how hard it is. <laughs> no, it was the exact opposite. Uh, she, you know, I only found out years later that she had wanted to be a director herself. But, you know, in the late 80s, that was not an easy proposition. So she became a producer, but um, she actually said the opposite. She said, you know, you've got child support from your dad until you were supposed to be done in college. So you've got sort of, I'm being, I've got child support to kind of cover you for the next two or three years. You should volunteer on as many film sets as you can, you know, meet as many people as you can, make as many movies as you can, like just use this time where I can support you to emerge yourself in the, in the environment of the film industry as much as you can so that once you have to start, you know, supporting yourself, instead of going to film school, you've actually built a network of people. And, you know, and that was really fundamental to me being able to kind of get traction. So did you ever actually go to film school? I've always been more self-taught and I've never had a real job. I've always, I've essentially always been either an editor, visual effects person or, or a director. You're finished high school. You've been on film sets, you know, and making movies for already like a few years. So what, how do you sort of like jump into a career? Because it sounds to me like you kind of already worked your way into a career in visual effects and, and making films with other folks. You know, you basically went from doing it for kind of like fun on the side to working at it, right? Yeah, I mean, it was a very, very long process with lots of ups and downs and lots of moments of being completely destitute. But 
the um and many years of not working at all but i kind of made a promise to myself that you know i was doing editing and visual effects and volu- and making my own short films and stuff um the biggest and all of that was essentially you know unpaid and just kind of getting by on the little jobs i'd get here and there there was a competition called on the lot that was a big reality television show that was happening in the states with um, mark burnett and steven spielberg and it was basically american idol for filmmaking before we go into that, I was going to ask about this because I think to set the stage for folks that might not know about On the Lot, I mean, this was before Project Greenlight. It was, you know, right at the beginning of like the reality TV boom as far as it comes to like competition shows. So, how do you even find out about this thing? Yeah, I mean, everyone I knew knew about it. It was huge news amongst the community that, you know, Spielberg is looking for unknown filmmakers and he's going to make all their dreams come true. Everyone knew about it. And so everyone applied and it took, it was like a six month sort of, you know, process of going from applying all the way to the point where I was in the top 50. And then that's when the actual TV show started and it went from 50 to 20 to 10 to, you know, all the way down. I ended up being in the top five, but in the top 50, I was the only Canadian because it was very difficult to kind of get all the visa stuff in place and, you know, get all the way down. So that experience was, I was in my early 20s. I think I was like 23 or something, 24. Um, didn't know anything. First time ever being to LA, you know, it was just sort of like this kind of whirlwind. And it was in uh, 2007, which was right before the uh, writer strike and right before the economic collapse of the world. And so it was a really great moment to kind of have a spotlight on you right into the worst possible time to try and start a career. Um, so then I didn't work for four years, but I learned in those four years where I didn't work, I was pitching tons. I was meeting tons. I was developing a lot. I was doing little commercials here and there. I, I was, it felt like complete and utter failure. And it was a very scary and depressing time, but looking back on it, I was really learning a, a massive amount of stuff and like practicing my craft a huge amount so that once opportunities did start to kind of come more in sort of uh, you know, 2012 and 2013, the I had been doing a huge amount of work to be ready for those opportunities and and really just started at the bottom of the industry. My first job, I was 40 grand in debt and did a sci-fi for the sci-fi channel, sci-fi monster movie that where they paid me 40 grand and, uh, you know, made this little 12 day MOW the best I possibly could. And kind of that led to the next thing, which led to the next thing. And you kind of build, build up from there. You know, I think everyone's experienced that whatever job you get, it leads somehow to the next job and you kind of slowly build on those, um, on those experiences. Can we talk a little bit about like more um, generally speaking, because I mean, one of the things that's true for a lot of people in both, you know, doing what you're doing and in the, you know, CG industry in general, there's sometimes downtime between projects. And, you know, you talk a little bit about that moment between finishing on the lot and the fact that you didn't actually work like and make another movie for four years, but you were still working. You were still doing work on your own. Can you talk a little bit about, you know, motivation and even today as, you know, perhaps the, the breaks between projects are shorter, but there are still breaks. Can you talk a little bit about, for you specifically, how do you stay motivated and um, uh, like practically speaking, what does that look like for you? Do you sit in a room and say, okay, I'm going to do for these four hours I'm writing today or like, how does that look like for you? Yeah. I mean, I think that question is essentially the heart of what it is to be an artist and the struggle of what it is to be an artist. And that there is no answer to that question that removes that feeling forever. And so 
through that period, I did struggle a lot. I was very depressed. Um, and I, I learned a really important lesson at that moment, which was I was telling myself the narrative that I'm currently not doing what I want. I'm currently failing at doing what I want. And everyone else I, I'm looking at and thinking of is succeeding and having success. And I am experiencing failure and I'm being unproductive. Um, and it was a few experiences that kind of flipped that for me, which was that, um, first of all, my dad kind of pointed out for me that, you know, if you spend all your time focusing on a future achievement that you tell yourself, I will be happy when I achieve that thing, you will spend 90% of your life or even 90% of the effort trying to get there unhappy. You will achieve that thing, be happy for 10 minutes. And then there will be a new thing in the future that you say, I will be happy when I achieve that future thing. And so if you go through your life in that way, you will have spent 90% of your life unhappy and 5% of your life happy, which obviously is not ideal. So he kind of reframed, which is very, you know, it's not groundbreaking, um, but it's very difficult to do, which is that it's the, it's the process, not the outcome, that the reward of being an artist, the reward of being a creator has to be the daily process of pursuing that quest, not the final outcome. Because you actually have no control over the experience of the outcome. You have no control over if people will like it, if it'll be successful, if it will make money. All of those things are completely out of your control. You could make the best thing ever and there's a hurricane that weekend and no one goes to the movies and it completely flops. You could you could make every right decision and the movie still is just creatively, you know, ends up not being good because the studio makes all sorts of changes to it and, and ruins it. There's so many things that can happen that are out of your control. The only thing you can control is the process of every day. So looking instead at um, what am I doing today that will reward me and make me feel great about being a creator and making the outcome of the day much more your focus rather than the outcome of the project or the goal that is, you know, years away. And then you can very simply be like, I want to work with these type of people today. I want to do writing today. I want to have this meeting with this producer today. And those are the things that are being a filmmaker. And that is me actually being it. You know, there was another quote I heard around that time, which was Guillermo del Toro saying that filmmaking is like eating a shit sandwich. You have to eat all the shit before you get to the crust. And when he said that, I I kind of realized that's Guillermo del Toro saying that filmmaking is going through tons of shit before you get to the crust. So it made me realize even at his level, and this has been true the more I've met people at the highest levels of, of cinema, is that it's a daily struggle for everyone, no matter how high you get. And the reason for that is that as artists, you always want to be doing something that you've never done before. And the world only wants you to do what you've done before. And so because of that inherent system, you are always having to prove yourself. You are always trying to struggle beyond the comfort of what you want to do, because that's what it is to be an artist. You're always trying to push yourself. But because you're trying to push yourself, you're pushing yourself out into the world where no one believes in you, where it's going to be a struggle, where there's huge walls to, to, to overcome, where there's going to be moments where you're not working. And so it reframed it from my head from being, I'm not doing it to I am doing it. Struggling is doing it. You know, there's this sort of belief that you break in and once you break in, it's all great. 
and it's just money and creativity for the rest of your life. Because sometimes we see people like Tarantino or Spielberg who their first film is a massive hit and they just get to do whatever they want for the rest of their lives. Well, that is a one in a 10 million career. The vast majority of everyone else is struggling every day. And if you can reframe that struggle in your mind to be what it is to be an artist and that that actually struggling is doing it, which is hard to do. It still takes daily work to try and you know reframe that. It doesn't just instantly make you zen and happy. But you have to constantly remind yourself that like just because I'm struggling doesn't mean I'm not doing it. That is what it actually is. There is no not struggling, which kind of sounds depressing. But for me, when I realized that, it actually reframed my struggle as being productive and being successful and making those micro goals rather than those macro goals. You know, to answer your question, as far as like my daily practice, I've kind of landed in a place where making sure you always have your own project that you're pushing forward at the same time that you're going after those other projects that are sort of the projects that probably are going to pay your rent and probably are going to be the, the, the jobs, if you will, those do take a long time. There's always downtime between those, those take, and the, and there's a very low hit rate. You go after 50 jobs to get one job or, you know, you really, you really have to, but it, what you have to be careful of, I think in my experience is that you don't only want to be working on your own projects and you don't only want to be going for those jobs. Because in my experience, the people that only go after those jobs, even if they start getting them, they often end up in a bit of a situation where they're a bit unfulfilled. They have a lot of money. They might have a house and they can provide for their family, but ultimately creatively, they're a bit unfulfilled because they're just sort of out there making stuff for other people. Um, and often the struggle of doing the stuff they really want to do never happens because when you're solely a director for hire who isn't creating their own stuff, you're not doing anything to show the world what you actually can do. And so you often get stuck in this situation. I think it's true for a lot of artists. If you're only doing commissioned work, you're not showing people this, the type of stuff that you really could be doing. And if you only do your own work, that's a real hard life. You're, you're, you might make something once every five, seven years. You'll probably put all your money into it. You'll be eating ramen noodles the whole time. You'll really be struggling. Like you'll never be on, you know, you'll be on set for a month every three years, you know? Um, and I've, I've know people that are creatively very fulfilled that way, but they're really struggling on a, on a financial side of things and sustaining themselves. And eventually they burn out and have to give up on their dream. And so if you actually do both, so if you essentially to answer your question, if you spend half your day pushing your own creative project forward and half your day hustling to get those jobs, it'll naturally sort itself out because one of those jobs will come through. You'll put all your effort into that job. You'll do that for six, seven months. You make a bunch of money. And inevitably, there's going to be another six, seven month gap while you try and still hustle to get that next one. And in that gap, you work on your own project. Eventually, you'll create that project. And it might be between a few other jobs, but eventually you'll get that project going. And when that project happens, it'll elevate the type of for hire jobs that you can go for. And the more that those for hire jobs happen, the more resources you will have to put into your personal projects and the bigger the vendors are who will be willing to help you and the DPs who will be willing to come do your cool little thing. So they both help each other. The The indie self-driven projects create this creative legacy that people then trust you more in the for hire work and let you be more of an auteur in the hire work. And the for hire work, as it gets bigger, gives you more resources to create your own 
stuff to be even bigger and more interesting and less of a struggle than it was before. So I try and do half and half every day. Assume that creatively as well, it, it helps you stay more stable as well, because all of a sudden you're you're using different areas maybe of your mind when you're working on, you know, the for hire work versus when you're working on your own creative project. Yeah, it also helps like those times where for the for hire work, you usually don't have the final creative say. Usually it's the person paying for it. And you, you know, you put as much of yourself in there as you can and you collaborate with them as much as you can. But there will be times where ultimately you have to kind of go, okay, if that's what you want. And that stings a little bit less when you have your own thing you can go to at the end of the day and do whatever the hell you want. So <laughs> I know you met Adam uh, on the lot, right? Did you stay connected uh, through that period where you were going through that sort of that dark time? Because it seems like creatively as a team, you guys didn't come back together until you made your short film Trunk. That's right. Yeah. Um, we were contestants against each other on, on the lot. Um, but we actually, the casting director put us into the same bedroom because she thought we'd get along. And we did. We became close friends very quickly. And uh, we just were best friends for quite a while. When eventually I moved to LA and he was my best friend in LA. And we were just directors supporting each other and hanging out and you know as for about five or six years slowly um there were a few things that we started doing together some short films where it was sort of like hey you want to co-direct this like this will be fun and just kind of did that we ended up doing a web series together um and each of those experiences were small and low stakes but kind of quickly showed us even though we'd both been working separately as directors that we collaborated really well um, and really, really enjoyed working together and that the work um, was even better than, than apart. Um, but really what, and it, but most of that was just sort of casual. Really what ended up happening is that we both sort of hit a, a rut in our separate directing careers where we were really struggling to kind of hit that next level of creating films where we could really be respected as directors. You know, we were each kind of doing jobs for hire that we put ourselves into, but they weren't really the type of work we wanted to be doing. We knew we had more to offer. And we both in a situation where we got fired off of films because we weren't big enough. <laughs> so they basically like hired us, helped, we helped get the project going. And then once it was going, they got rid of us and got a bigger director so they could get cast. And that happened to both of us. And we were just like, oh man, this industry is so horrible. And right around then we listened, this was in 2015, when um, this very famous speech was given by Mark Duplass at South By called The Cavalry's Not Coming. And that speech essentially changed our lives. And it's changed the lives of many people who've, who've, who I've since told to go watch it. And he basically gives an extremely explicit to-do list of what you should do to actually take control of your own career. And we essentially just did what he told us to do and started writing a script uh, based on his instructions and that script became Freaks, which because we co-wrote it together, we were like, well, I guess we'll direct this together too, because we both want to be directors. And as that project, which was initially written to be a micro budget, like $0 project that we could create literally for $0 with the two of us acting in it with his son as this, the kid and, you know, shooting it in Adam's house. As we started working on that and growing it, you know, we ended up getting more resources than we thought. Um, but the key of the thing was that we never needed more resources than we had. So whatever resources we got, we could use, but there was no amount of money or or that we needed to actually greenlight it. We could, because we could make it for zero, anything we did get only made it better. And that allowed us to make that film. And that film did extremely well. It was a very much a Cinderella story of kind of this tiny film that 
um, ended up creatively being massively rewarding, financially very successful for the investors and reframed for the industry, the type of work that, you know, they would consider us for. And it was the first time anything we had written had been made. I've been writing for 10 years, but none of those things have ever get made. And so suddenly, even though we hired ourselves to make it, everyone considered us as writers and as people that had could have an opinion on the script and stuff like that. So it really kind of change things for us. And so since that moment, we've now done everything together ever since. On a practical level, what does the day look like when you're working with Adam versus when you're working by yourself? So I assume that you guys probably have a bit of a shorthand that you've developed over the years that you've been working together. How did those days look different when you're writing your own project independently or when you're writing with Adam? There's two heads banging against the wall instead of one. But, you know, we basically do everything that one person would do. We just, the two of us do it at the same time. So it's a it's a lot of brainstorming where we're just, you know, the reason we work together and we like working together is because it's very rare to find someone you can brainstorm with egolessly, where it's truly about the project and it's not my idea, it's a idea. And you can say why you don't like the other person's idea without worrying about their feelings or, you know, their ego. And we've been through that process enough times that we now really, really enjoy it. And even when we disagree, it's almost the most exciting part because it it leads to ideas that neither one of us would have come up with. And so it's really just us hashing things out. It, it, it t- I think it takes a lot longer than if one person was doing it. Cause when you're writing by yourself, you're constantly going, eh, that's, that's probably fine. Uh, they're probably not going to realize that logic hole. Ah, that'll be all right. Whereas having someone else go, you know what? Actually, no, that is, we need to make that better. And you go, well, I have no idea how to make that better. And they go, okay, well, what if we did this? No, that's terrible. But actually you saying that, made me think about what if we do this and oh yeah that's great we could do this too and then it suddenly it's way better um and that's true of everything we do shot listing going through budgets figuring out blocking writing editing it's all just basically a constant you know collaboration you work a lot in the and i think this might come back to the fact that you were self-taught in the visual effects side of things um and you know jurassic park being uh, a movie that was seminal to you you know, you work a lot in sort of like adult themes. Uh, so, you know, films about science fiction, fantasy, horror, uh, genres that you're really comfortable in and where a lot of your projects have stemmed from. But you've also done a lot of work with Disney. And I'm curious from a creative standpoint, when you're working on projects that are more geared towards young adults and children, how does that change or affect the way that you work? It kind of doesn't other than, you know, the censorship of the executive saying you can't do that. But, you know, we try and make stuff, even when it's for kids, as accessible for everyone as possible. And I think people often dumb things down too much for kids and and think that you have to put too much baby gloves on there or you can't let them feel intense emotions. So we try and actually push things as far as we can there, making as intense as we can, both emotionally and as ex- you know as exciting as it can be. And um, obviously there's certain things graphically you can't do uh, when you're doing it for kids, but usually the the narrative doesn't need that anyway. But, you know, as far as our process, it's essentially the same. We're just making it for the kids inside of ourselves rather than, you know, the twisted dark side of ourselves. <laughs> um, the process is pretty much the same, you know, for, for creating both. Um, but you're right that it's, and it's, and it's fun to go back and forth, you know, freaks in some ways was a, was a synthesis of those two things. Freaks is about an eight-year-old girl. And so we took all of the experiences that we'd had working with kids and creating stuff for kids, but put it into a more sort of 
uh, darker Sundance, Sundance sort of genre space um, so that we could kind of get our the dark side of the genre space that we love, but with that feeling of wonder and innocence and joy that comes from doing stuff that um, is more accessible to kids. You talk a little bit about pushing envelopes and at the end of the day, when you're doing a job for hire, you know, somebody else is always going to have most likely the, the final say, but how do you know, or what would you say would be a good tip for folks that are in that space to, to how far is it okay to push? And when do you know that now's the time to stop? Can't go any further than that. Do you have any good tips for how to manage that? Yeah, it's a very delicate, I would say the most learning you do as a creative is figuring out how to push <laughs> because it's extre- that that's extremely difficult. Like the the learning of like directing is actually quite I would say quite easy or at least it plateaus very early like where to put the camera, how to block a scene, what the lenses are going to be, how to edit, like how to tell a story, how to make the audience feel certain emotions. I think is pretty easy. Like you can you can make a few films, you can work a few years and you can kind of learn the lessons to do that. How to navigate the personalities and politics involved of a project that costs millions of dollars and everyone has a lot of fear and there's a lot of different opinions that are essentially subjective um, and you are theoretically responsible for the experience of the creative, but most of the time you're not. Most of the time when someone else is paying for it, they have final say and those people often have a lot of fear. And so how to push is really, really an art form that you learn over and over and over again through failure and through, you know, trying things and realizing, oh, that didn't work. I got to try this next time. And it's also different for who the people are that you're working with. Every person is different. So kind of the different way that you give notes is very different depending on the person you're talking to and the way that you um, suggest ideas that are different than what everyone's agreed to is very different. When you're suggesting something that's harder to do, but better, a lot of people would rather do the thing that's easier to do, even though it's not better because everyone knows how to do that and everyone's already agreed that we're doing it. And you know, as the director, I know this is going to be harder, but it will be better people are often very hesitant to do that, especially if the boss has already agreed to it because no one wants to go to the boss and say, Hey, we've that thing you said you want to do, we're going to do it differently. And there's no real like pithy answer I can give you there other than it. Most of the learning I do is about that. So I'm watching masterclasses about psychology, about negotiation, about um, influencing people, about sales, about marketing, about, um, conflict resolution. Like that's where all the learning is that I do because that's essentially the job. You know, everyone will let you put the camera where it should be and you can talk to the composer and figure out what the music should be doing. Like that's never really the places that you you um, have issues. It's It's really negotiating with people and learning how to do that without pissing them off. I wanted to go back a little bit to Freaks and ask you a few more questions about that experience because that film, I remember when I saw it out of tiff it was kind of like you know i had already i already knew your work i had seen some of the stuff that you had made so i knew you were capable but seeing sort of that project emerge was kind of like okay so this is the movie that zach always had in him <laughs> we're on to the next run 
Can you talk a little bit about that experience? You know, you talk a little, you've already mentioned that, you know, you guys were ready to make that movie with zero money. So anything that you had was kind of like icing on the cake. But clearly you knew that this was a project. I'm assuming that once you start getting those resources and people start to get interested, you maybe think, okay, maybe we have something here that's bigger than what we thought. We always thought it was going to be amazing. But from the perspective of like the execution, it was essentially what we always knew we were going to do. Like all the visual effects, I did probably two, 300 shots in that movie. All of them, when we were writing four years earlier, we only wrote things I knew I could do on my laptop into the script. Now, in the end, there were some bigger shots that vendors did for us. They did them for free or for points, um, but they weren't shots we had planned on having in the movie. Those those shots all came out of us showing the movie and people going, hey, I want to see the the whole prison explode or I want to see that. And we're like, well, there's that. I can't do that on my laptop. Um, and so we eventually called in favors to get those bigger things. But, you know, from the very designing principle, it's in a house, there's a park, there's a restaurant, there's three or four characters, like all that was stuff and all the visual effects I could do on my laptop. So it was all stuff that we knew we could do without any resources. As we got bigger resources, the biggest thing that changed was bigger cast, you know, really having some amazing cast, you know, a two-time Oscar nominee played the role I was supposed to play. Were you sad to lose that role? <laughs> I was extremely relieved. Um, it would have been terrible if I was in that role, but, uh, but the movie would have gotten made. That's the point. Um, and as far as that experience, you know, it was by far the most rewarding creative experience of my life. I, I'm comfortable with the fact that that probably will be the most creative experience of my life ever. I don't know if it could ever be better than it was on that film because I was making it with my best friend, making exactly what we wanted to make. If anyone sees that movie and doesn't like anything about it, we're entirely to blame. Every single frame of that movie is exactly what we intended um and what we wanted and and so that's super satisfying um and we really thought that it would um you know the fact that it got any attention at all that it found an audience at all that it you know got one audience choice awards and film festivals all around the world was just so so much of an experience that was beyond what we were expecting that it was so rewarding um and you know we were able to balance all of the things that creatively we love, you know, not only is it a genre story, but it's also got a meaningful sort of social allegory. It's also got really, you know, interesting, complex characters. It's, it takes a genre, but treats it seriously and doesn't, you know, make it pulpy. And, but at the same time, it can be pulpy. It's also like some, some reviews described it as the kitchen sink of genre, which it, to us is exactly what we were going for. We wanted a film that wasn't stuck in one genre, that it actually changed genre as her experience changed because the film's highly subjective. So when she's scared, it's a horror film. When she's feeling wonder, it's a Spielberg movie. When she wants revenge, it's a Tarantino movie. Like that's what we wanted. So um, being able to kind of create that experience and see it through all the way from beginning in, it took five years to make that movie was incredibly rewarding and I recommend everyone <laughs> go do it, you know, and to some degree, hopefully we'll have that experience again. You're at the top of the world when Freaks comes out. It's the movie you've always wanted to make. It's doing well. It's being well received. Now there's all this pressure to, so like, I'm sure everybody asks you after every interview you did promoting Freaks. So what's next for you guys? This is again, where everyone should now pause the podcast and go listen to The Cavalry's Not Coming by Mark Duplass, because he talks exactly about this part of your career. Because everyone thinks at that moment, the cavalry is coming, Hollywood's coming, and they're going to offer you all sorts of things. And you just, you know, accept jobs and have creative freedom and money for the rest of your life. 
Um, and that isn't what happens. What happens is you go on tons and tons of meetings. You start developing things that are never going to get made. You you sell scripts that never get you know created. You're paid to write scripts that never you know. So there's there's definitely a different level of success in that you now can sort of sustain yourself financially in in the creative industry, but things actually getting made or happening still essentially don't. And so there's years that go by with nothing happening. And so, you know, we had lots of projects after that, that um, started happening and then eventually didn't. We had a few that actually, well, really just, yeah, we had a few that actually did happen, but that's, you know, one out of every hundred, you know, people never see the 50, 75 pitches that directors do um, and even projects that get going and then shut down. And like, you know, for every one project that gets made, there's thousands that don't get made. And so a lot of that, and then at the same time, working on our own stuff, developing our own scripts, developing our own little things. We've, we're, we've been working on a sequel to Freaks that's um, almost ready to go. And so still, like I said, working on your own little thing that you're pushing forward as all the big things collapse. And then once in a while, the big things don't collapse. And that's led to a few things. So we went and did, you know, Kim Possible. We did some, a few TV series that were really fun. And then sort of the biggest thing we've been working on for the last two years is, is um, the next Final Destination film. Okay. You bring it up and I have to ask because <laughs> I I assume that this Zoom recording of how you got this job is somewhere. And for those that haven't heard the story, can you please elaborate on September of 2022, news erupted that you had died. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's still a little under wraps, so I can't fully explain it. But yes, um, in the process of, you know, going after the job, and if people don't know, you know, directors essentially have to audition at, through many callbacks. It's very similar to what actors go through. You don't just like go up to the studio and say, hey, I want to make a movie. And they go, sure, no problem, kid. Um, you have to go through meetings after meetings with new higher and higher levels. And then eventually it comes to the situation where you're sitting in front of you know everyone who's going to make the decision and they're meeting you and probably two other people and they're going to decide amongst the three of you. Um, because it was still during COVID, this was all over Zoom. And we are often thinking, how do we, you know, how do we show people not only do we really love this, but we really get it. And one of the things that's really difficult to express in a pitch is tone. Um, you know, when you're pitching, if you're pitching a comedy, your pitch better be hilarious enough that they're laughing. If you're pitching a drama, like you should be crying and they should be crying by the end of the pitch. And so, and if you're pitching a horror film, they should have the hairs on the back of their neck, you know, going up as you pitch. And so that the experience, experience of the pitch needs to be the experience of the movie and that way tone is communicated and it's very difficult to do and most of the time it is unsuccessful and so in the tone of final destination it's very difficult it's it is scary but it's also kind of fun and it is gory but it's not, not so gory that you know it's torture porn at the same time it's it's it needs to be character driven but it can't be so morose that everyone's crying because all these people are dying like it's just like it's this very interesting middle ground of being fun but horror but action but slightly dramatic but not too dramatic and so we one of the ways we wanted to do that was um, at the end of our pitch having death come for us in the middle of the pitch without them knowing and i can't get into the specific specifics of how we did it yet but from there perspective in while we were pitching the room started to light on fire we put the fire out they thought that was the trick. They all started clapping and and then the ceiling fan, which I had turned on, 
ripped off the ceiling, fell from the sky and chopped Adam's head off, spraying blood all over the himself and his headless corpse fell to the ground. And then I got back on screen and said, okay, any questions? And so that was, you know, showing them the, the enjoyment of the experience of what it's like to watch the film. And so they were able to have confidence that, you know, we would be good stewards for the film. Yeah, it's been super exciting. We've been working on the film for quite a while and we'll be starting very soon. I, I would have loved to be, have been a fly in the room when you and Adam were brainstorming uh, your your call. <laughs> I, it would have been fun to hear you guys go, well, you think that's going too far? <laughs> How do we pull this off? Yeah, it was a, it was an extremely high risk. I'll tell you that because there was probably five things that could have gone wrong that would have made it an incredibly embarrassing moment rather than a cool moment. But we practiced it probably 40 times to the point where it couldn't fail. And I mean, that's also an exercise in taking chances, right? And putting yourself out there and just trusting that you're prepared and you know, you, clearly, you know, the project, you know what they want or what they think they want and delivering on that. Um, and can you talk a little bit about, you know, preparation for anything, preparation for like a pitch or preparation for a meeting? You know, what are your what are some of the tips that you have for, you know, being well prepared for whatever it is that you're doing next? Yeah, I have a lot. It depends how long your podcast is. I could talk about that for a very long time. I, I've taught many courses about that. I've sat on many juries. I, I prep lots of people. But I think some of the the the, the key things are probably the most important one isn't actually the project or the story. It's why you, or what we often call the why me. So why are you the person to tell this story? Um, why are you the only director in the world who can tell this story? Um, and that's true if it's your own project that you've been developing or you're with the writer or yourself, or if you're coming onto someone else's project that they've been developing and they're meeting other people. What are all of the life experiences that you've had that have been leading up to this moment that you've walked in the room and you were the only person in the world who could make this film. The reason you really have to invest heavily in that is because um, if you don't and someone else will, they'll choose that other person. And so it could be anything. It could be the experience you had growing up. It could be the experience you've had through your gender, your race, your ethnicity, your, your experience with abuse. It could be your experience um, making certain types of movies that have given you this very specific knowledge about how a certain genre works. It could be... Um, anything about you that is unique that other people don't possess you need to lean very heavily into that to basically present yourself as an expert i am an expert in this material because of this reason and no one else can tell this story other than me because of that if you nail that almost the rest of your pitch it doesn't matter like that that is the most key part um then when you are pitching you know being very concise very clear practicing so much to the point where you can't fail. Um, being very aware of not speaking the whole time. You you want to create a pitch where it's a dialogue and that's really tough to do. Most people think a pitch should be me speaking for half an hour and then I go, ta-da. If you do that, it'll be horrible. It has to be a dialogue. It has to be something where you're asking questions, where you're engaging them, where they're asking you questions about, and then you can talk about that instead of the thing you had prepared. You want to make a, a dialogue so that the person stays engaged. If you talk to them for 30 minutes straight, they will just zone out completely. Um, and so there's a lot of different things you can do to make it a dialogue. I personally do a lot of visual work where we're bringing visuals in and, and showing visuals. Not everyone does that. Some people find that to be really distracting because I have a visual background. I'm able to create a lot of stuff that ends up really helping 
the pitch and, and makes it look like we're really prepared and really paints very clear thing. Another thing we do, which um, we've learned from a lot of the stuff that I've studied is, is often being very honest with them about the pitfalls of what their, um, of what their project might fall into. If you paint the potential downfalls of their project for them, they've probably already had those fears. And the fact that you're verbalizing them and then suggest the solutions gives them a lot more confidence that you're going to be able to avoid those pitfalls, especially if the other people they're meeting don't say the pitfalls, then it's like, well, they're not, they're not aware of the fact that this genre can sometimes become very easily cartoony and dumb. You know, this director was, and he's going to do these things to, to make sure that it doesn't or whatever the pitfall might be that it becomes too sentimental or that it becomes not exciting enough or the stakes are too low or whatever the, the pitfall might be. Um, that's like a real, real key um, one. And then another is just keeping it like, keep your ideas very condensed, have three ideas, not 10 ideas, you know, really, really keep it simple for them so that they can remember the take. Oh, these are the three most important things. They can remember that. Um, and there's a lot of social sciences around why one isn't as good as two and why two is better than one, but not as good as three and why three is way better than four and five is terrible. Like you just three, always go for that number three when you're trying to communicate, you know, an idea. Anyway, there's lots of things, but those are some of the highlights. This actually leads into a question that I have about your work with the Directors Guild of Canada, because, you know, you talk a little, you you mentioned how, you know, you, you could spend an entire, you know, day talking about this stuff. And you've done a lot of work in the past, you know, on panels and, and guiding young directors. And now you work with the Directors Guild. For you, why is it important to give back to the community? Yeah, I mean... Honestly, I'm, I do it fairly selfishly. I just enjoy being around other directors. I enjoy learning from other directors. You know, a lot of the stuff I've learned about pitching have been through seeing other directors pitch or learning from them what, what works and what doesn't work. Um, I love just being a part of the community. And um, my role at the Directors Guild allows me to travel across the whole country and go to lots of events and create events and um, for the whole, for all the directors in, in the country, which is just very rewarding. It, it ends up being very fun. My favorite people to hang out with are other filmmakers and, and getting a chance to, to help them. Well, it helps them is, is, is great for them. Really. I just do it because I really enjoy it. I really enjoy seeing them succeed. I really enjoy seeing them, you know, get over the hurdles that they're experiencing. And it, it is a long-term thing. You know, a lot of the people I've worked with at the guild it takes three or four years of them going through all the different things that we do before they really start getting traction but that's really rewarding to see to see that they people apply themselves for those those four years and they you know get from their short film to their first MLW to their first episode and start sort of being able to sustain themselves and then you know getting to learn from them everyone's different and so being a director is one of those things where it isn't very competitive amongst directors because we're all so unique that the type of jobs that each of us would go up for is, is very seldom overlaps. And so it's a very non-competitive environment. And honestly, most directors never get to hang out with other directors that much because it's usually it is a very solo type of thing. And I've experienced that not only does my learning increase when I'm around other people, but it's hugely, hugely rewarding to see other people's, you know, careers sort of take off. You started with a background in visual effects and that really got your foot in the door on a creative side of things. And, you know, that's something that you've kept up and your films always have a, a very visual uh, appeal to them. And the technology changes so quickly and it's always changing and always evolving. 
do you spend time like actively learning whatever new tools are sort of coming up and how do you stay on top of all that? I don't basically. My visual effects knowledge is essentially stuck in the early 2000s, I would say. Uh, you know, I'm still when I do visual effects, I'm still using After Effects, I'm still using, you know, all it was I basically learned all this tools before it really became a node based, you know, workflow. So all those node based systems are beyond me. I understand intellectually how they work, but I don't know them very well. Um, but for the type of stuff I'm doing now, you know, there's always now large visual effects teams that I'm overseeing. Usually when I'm doing visual effects, it's because they're simple effects that the producers don't want to pay for. It's like extra blood hits, extra sparks, extra lens flares, like simple stuff that is actually super easy for me to do or or painting out something that bugs me that everyone's like that doesn't matter it's all i'm always basically doing the the simple stuff off the side of my desk that production doesn't want to pay for or doing a lot of temp work so like in the when you're first doing director cuts or kind of building out you know the experience of the rough version of the movie sometimes you have in-house visual effects teams that help you with that but sometimes you don't and your assistant editor and you are kind of roughing in you know stuff that's where i so the fact that I'm still using After Effects basically isn't that bad. Um, and that's kind of where my skill set has kind of remained. But the essentials of like how compositing works, you know, I knew a little bit of Maya as Maya was in 2005 and 2006. Like, so I understand modeling and compositing and physics and all that type of stuff enough to be able to talk the lingo with the other artists and understand what is easy and what is hard and you know, that served me very, very well and be able to talk with the visual supervisors, visual effects supervisors in a way where we know what we're both saying or what the obstacle is and can brainstorm ways around it, but rely heavily on artists, you know, much more experienced than I, which, which is essentially the role of the director. You surround your, all the artists you work with, the DP, the composer, uh, composer, the, the actors, the writers, they all know more about their craft than you do. You're just there to kind of speak their language enough that you can kind of steer them to make sure that they're making the same movie as everyone else. And that's amazing insight as well, because I mean, that it seems to me that the, the common theme in this discussion is you're always learning and it's not necessarily about the skills that you already know, like where to put the camera, what lenses to use, but it's all, it's about the people skills. That's where most people fail or succeed, you know, and that makes sense. You know, it's a very, it's a, it's probably the most collaborative art form. If you had, like, if you look at painting or writing or, being a musician or or whatever those art forms are that are out there, standing on the set with 200 people, all who have very specific jobs and they're all looking at you like, you know, and you're kind of, it's sort of like being a conductor, but there's no sheet music. Like, it's like, okay, here we go. I need you to do this and I need you to do this and blah, blah, blah. And oh, that's not going to work. Oh, you're right. Okay, thank you. Yes, good idea. We're going to now change this completely. And when I thought I told you all we were going to do this, now we're going to do this. And, you know, like being... uh being good at collaborating is sort of the essential piece of it. And then the benefit of that is that as you get better at it and become good at balancing hearing ideas while also holding on to the thread that is essential to the core of the story that sort of only you have in your heart and not letting that be watered down by a committee, but at the same time, not closing off the conversation to feedback, you know, finding that middle ground is sort of the key. And the better you become good at that, um, the more successful you are and the more that you get the benefit of everyone's ideas while also having a way of saying thank you for that idea but it it actually doesn't fit with the rest of the ideas that we are currently you know doing and making sure that people 
still feel supported when you say no? I think one of the things that's particularly interesting about your career and the time where you sort of entered the industry is you were at a time sort of after the the whole Sundance craze where, you know, um, Kevin Smith went in and that sort of rounded, that started this momentum of make a movie on your credit card, grab a camera and just do it. And now we're in a time where, you know, the tools, everybody's got a phone with a camera that can probably make a pretty good movie if you just go out there and do the work. And you sort of came in at a time where you were in between those two things. (laughs) Technology is quickly changing and evolving, but we're kind of past this, put it, make it on your credit card, but we're not quite at, you know, shoot it with whatever awesome camera you just bought because it's not going to give you that great video. Could you talk a little bit about and, and maybe provide one or two uh, suggestions for young filmmakers that are wanting to make their own movies and tell their own stories. What would be some tips or some suggestions that you would give them about, you know, getting started in their careers? Yeah. I mean, I think basically make a film that only you could make. So make the film that there's been, this is something Tarantino says all the time. There's hundreds of thousands of movies or at least tens of thousands of movies. So why are you making movies? What are you making that no one has ever made before? And make that film, make the film that only you could make, whatever that means to you, either because of your lived experience or your skill set or your perspective or the certain overlap of things that you nerd out about, whatever it is, make that movie because that's the only way that you'll stand out. So don't make what you think people want. Make make the thing that only you can make. Um, that's sort of essential. And through through doing that, your voice will kind of develop naturally. Also, um, don't write things you can't make. This is the thing that Mark Duplass talks about. You know, the biggest mistake most filmmakers do is they write a script that requires things they don't have. Everyone does that. But if you write a script that only has things in it that you do have, as soon as you write the end, you're greenlit. And everyone falls into this trope of writing something that they need permission to make. And whenever you put yourself into that position, the chances of it happening are almost zero, but it's a choice. You can put yourself into a situation where you make something that you can make, whether that means you have this amount of money or you have access to these types of uh, actors or access to this type of gear or access to these types of locations or whatever the things you have access to, or in my case, access to free visual effects or whatever it is, only make a movie that has things you have access to. And that goes for your whole career as you as you grow. Like, okay, now I'm at this level of my career. I have access to this amount of money. I have access to this level of actor. So write something for that. That way you can always make it. And then another last thing I would say is never stop making things. The most common mistake most uh, artists, at least filmmakers, uh, fall into, and it's extremely common. I've done it. I think everyone I know has done it, is... You make a few things, you make a few short films, and then you make something that in your mind is your calling card. You're, you're, it's, the, it's the thing you're making to kind of plant a flag and say, here I am. And I've done that probably four or five times. Here I am. And then nothing happens. Or the things that do happen all fall apart. That's likely what's going to happen. And it's, it's going to have to be many things of you kind of planting your flag for the rest of your life. You're always going to have to be proving yourself. And so the mistake that most people make is they make their calling card thing, either their calling card short, their calling card feature, their calling cards, card spec commercial, music video, whatever it is. And then because they've made their calling card thing, usually this is when you get a grant, like you get the crazy eights or you get some sort of thing that, you know, is giving you 40 grand to make your thing. You make it. 
And then you have your goal of what you're going to do next. So say you've made your calling card short, your goal is to make your feature. And what ends up happening is you stop making the things you were making before because they're, they're going to be smaller scale than the calling card. And what ends up happening is years go by and you make nothing. And what happens is everyone stops seeing you as a artist. They stop seeing you as a filmmaker. And so instead, and it's very painful to do this and very few, few people do, but every time someone's in a rut, I tell them, when's the last time you made anything? And it's often more than three years ago. And I've seen time and time again, when they just swallow their pride, go back and make something, even if it's smaller than the stuff they've made before, it sends a ripple out into the universe that they make stuff. And all the opportunities that I've had in my life that have changed where I'm at, again, doesn't make life easier. It just changes the level that you're at. But each time that that's happened, that an opportunity has come to me, which is sort of the holy grail of being an artist, that the universe reaches out and says, hey, kid, you want to do this project or whatever? The only reason that's happened is because something I've made washed up upon the shores of that person. So that producer or that studio exec or that agent or whatever it is at some point saw something I was making. And that only happens at the moment that you create that thing. It's like dropping a rock into a lake and the ripples go out. They don't go out. They don't keep rippling forever. They only There's a moment that they ripple. And so what most people do is they drop a rock into the lake. The ripples go out. A few opportunities happen. And then they stop dropping rocks in the lake because they're waiting for that next step. And so the easiest thing you can do is continuously dropping rocks in the lake to create ripples, even if they're smaller rocks, because it just continues to remind people what you're doing. And that's what will trigger um, opportunities starting to come your way because more and more people will go, hey, I've just been really impressed with what that person's been doing, what their voice is. And each time you make something, you meet more people. You meet, even though you're doing a corporate video, not everyone on that corporate video wanted to be making corporate videos. They're going to go on and do other things. And so you've made your calling card feature and now you're going to do corporate video. Like, great. You're going to meet a bunch of people and they're going to go on to do commercials. And now you're doing commercials. And then eventually that leads to the person who owns the, you know, this happened to me, the person who owns the pesto company of the commercial you're doing saying, Hey, I want to invest in your next creative endeavor. So it's just like by constantly creating work, it creates more work. And so it can be very, very difficult to self-generate in that way. Because every time you make something, you feel like this is going to be the thing that makes things easier for me. It never gets easier. You just have to keep making stuff. Um, and if you do, eventually that stuff will at least get to a level where you're sustaining yourself financially. It doesn't get any easier, but you're at least probably able to pay your rent you know, creating rather than doing something else that drains your creative energy. And that was our conversation with director Zach Lepofsky. You can find Zach's last film, Freaks, now available for rental or purchase across various platforms. And you can follow his adventures in directing on Instagram at Zach.Lepofsky. The Sparkcast is a production of the Spark Computer Graphics Society. Opening and closing credits by Michael Edlin. Editing and additional production support by Joshua Peterman. For more about SparkCG and our upcoming events, visit sparkcg.org.